I was in my office. Vaccination effort is over at this point. I was in my office and I got a phone call. And the phone call was from a person in Washington, D.C., who worked for the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Instantly, like, my stomach just dropped. Attention passengers, welcome to the Green Line Podcast, where we take you on a journey to meet people from all around the world and hear their inspiring stories about how we can revolutionize our future. We're your conductors. Anam. And Alex speaking. On today's episode, we'll be hosting Dr. Suzette McKinney and highlighting her work as a leading woman who is transforming the life sciences research industry in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. McKinney, to the Green Line. Let's jump right in and talk a little bit about you first. In your career so far, you have accomplished a lot. Currently, you are the Principal and Director of Life Sciences for Sterling Bay and previously served as CEO and Executive Director of the Illinois Medical District. And then in 2020, you were appointed by Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker as Operations Lead for the State of Illinois Alternate Care Facilities a network of alternate medical locations designed to decompress the hospital system during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Dr. McKinney, you are obviously such an incredibly accomplished woman. So I want to start out by giving you a couple of minutes to brag about yourself. Okay, wow. Well, I have to admit, I don't normally brag about myself. Um, but what I will say is, you know, I was born and raised here in Chicago. I am a native Chicagoan and I love this city. I often say that Chicago is my city. So, of course, there are 2.7 million other people that live here. But as far as I'm concerned, Chicago is my city. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, just off of 79th Street near Stony Island Avenue. So the southeast side of the city. And I attended Whitney Young High School, which is on the west side of the city. Um, let's see, you know, I just, I loved my uh, childhood growing up here in Chicago. Uh, I have fond memories of being able to, you know, go outside in front of our home and jump double dutch on the sidewalk with my friends. Um, and Chicago is also the place where I raised my daughter. So, uh, and she is the ultimate city girl, uh, which is very interesting to me that she loves the city so much, but yet she chose a college that is in more of a suburban area. But um, whenever she comes home, she loves taking advantage of just the beautiful sights and the hustle and bustle of downtown Chicago. So that's actually one of the things that I enjoy most experiencing the city now through my daughter's eyes and hanging out with her and exploring new places here in the city. Aw, yeah, we love Chicago too. Our show title is actually based on the Chicago Green Line, so that's nice to hear. And you know, Chicago is home to the second largest medical district in the United States, and you were CEO of it. So Dr. McKinney, can you tell our listeners what inspired you to work in the healthcare industry? Sure. Well, I have to admit, I have wanted to be a doctor my entire life, just about ever since I was five years old. My mother used to always ask me why I was so obsessed with babies. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that was, but I've always had a very strong desire to help people. And I've always loved babies and small children. And so 
I considered those to be like my two greatest interests. And therefore, I grew up wanting to be a doctor, specifically wanting to be a pediatrician. But as I went away to college and pursued my undergraduate study, I refined that career choice just a little bit and decided that not only did I want to be a pediatrician, I wanted to be a specialized pediatrician. And so that landed me with neonatology. And that was my goal. Go to medical school, become a neonatologist and, you know, be this great baby doctor whose oldest patient would be no more than 30 days old. Um, Probably about my junior year in undergrad, I was introduced to the field of public health. I was doing an internship with a physician at Harvard Medical School, and he was studying degenerative eye diseases in infants. And so that was really my first introduction to public health. And the first time that I came to understand that public health was all about prevention of of health conditions and diseases that stem from human behavior. And so I decided that if I pursued a master's degree in public health, that would probably make me a much better clinician because I would have a greater depth of understanding into how some of the conditions and diseases that afflict babies um, could be prevented, you know, through research and through other types of medical intervention. And so that was really the origin of my interest in healthcare. So I did finish undergrad. I did pursue that master's degree in public health. And somewhere along the way, I decided that you know, prior to applying to medical school, it would be a good idea for me to try and gain a year of experience working in the public health field. And, you know, I love it when opportunities come my way, but I also say sometimes be careful what you ask for. Um, And that's because I graduated with my master's in public health in the spring of 2001, June of 2001 to be exact. And three months later, 9-11 happened. And, you know, um, after 9-11, just the very next month, our country experienced the anthrax attacks. And so I did get a job in public health. I got an amazing job in public health. I was hired to be the bioterrorism regional coordinator for the city of Chicago. And I don't know, I was like 26, maybe. I don't know. Very, very young. I didn't even know what a bioterrorism regional coordinator was, Um, but it sounded exciting. Um, And the role turned out to be very exciting. And needless to say, one year turned into two. And by the end of the second year, I just couldn't pull myself away. And so that was really the start of what has been a very amazing career in public health. And, um, you know, I come from a family where grandparents are very important. I'm sure you guys understand that. And uh, my grandmother had told me, always told me my entire life that she wanted me to be a doctor. So, of course, I couldn't disappoint grandma. Um, So once I realized that I was going to remain in the field of public health as a career, that was when I made the decision to go back to graduate school and pursue my doctorate degree in public health. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Great. Um, So maybe for some of the listeners who aren't 
familiar with what happens in public health. Could you maybe talk about some of uh, maybe like the big problems in public health now? Like what, um, I mean, obviously like COVID-19 big public health crisis. Uh, so yeah, maybe you just talk about like the landscape of the field as it is right now. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I would say to the audience, there are multiple areas that span the landscape of public health. My area of expertise in public health is emergency preparedness and response. And that's really relevant to us today, especially with what we've been going through for the past year with COVID-19. And so in emergency preparedness and response, the goal there from a public health perspective is to conduct planning and prepare local and state jurisdictions for any type of emergency situation that could cause extreme uh, public health and medical consequences in the event of a disaster. So we are talking about terrorism events, whether that's biological or chemical terrorism, or even radiological or nuclear terrorism. We are talking about pandemics, such as what we've seen with COVID. We're also talking about other emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. So think think SARS from many years ago, think Ebola from just a few years ago, or even H1N1. And then we're also talking about natural hazards, natural disasters, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, all of the things that make the um, ability to obtain healthcare difficult for residents or that make the ability to deliver healthcare difficult difficult for hospitals and other healthcare institutions, and also the things that can impact a person's ability to just be healthy. Um, So those are some of the things on the landscape of public health from an emergency preparedness and response perspective. But other areas of public health include uh, epidemiology and surveillance. So essentially, the study of disease, the origin of that disease, and then investigation of large disease outbreaks to figure out, you know, what's the source of this E. coli outbreak, or, you know, what's the source of some other type of foodborne outbreak. Um, Problems around, um, you know, smoking cessation and all of the healthcare challenges that smoking can cause. Another area would be um, infant mortality, you know, and optimizing maternal and child health. So there are many, many areas, again, um, across the public health landscape that are just timely and relevant for today. So how do you think that, uh, how do you think COVID-19 is changing all of this? Like, is it... um, I mean, this is probably the biggest public health event in like the last century, right? So how is it how is it changing the way that people are approaching public health now? Like is it is it any different? What were some of um what were some of like the you know the shortcomings or failures that that happened when we were you know, were we pre- were we prepared, you know? That was it um was our response like adequate, do you think? Sure. So I think one of the ways that COVID has changed public perception or people's reaction to public health, if you will, first and foremost, I think it's made people much more aware. 
um, not only aware of pub what public health is, but aware of what some of the public health interventions are that we would call upon to protect us from health conditions such as COVID-19. I think the another aspect would be just the awareness of vaccine development and how vaccines and other medical countermeasures are developed through scientific research, as well as development of those new products. I think a lot of people are much more educated now, or at least they're paying attention more to how and why new medications are developed. What I will say with regards to our response, you know, again, I've worked in emergency preparedness and response for the vast majority of my career in public health, almost 20 years. And, you know, starting in 2003, when we originally saw SARS in Asia, you know, Taiwan and some of the other Asian countries where we saw SARS emerge, that was really uh, one of the first inclinations that we could see a major pandemic in our lifetimes. You know, um, the situation with avian influenza, the bird flu, as it was once called in Southeast Asia, was another indication that we could see a large scale pandemic within our lifetimes. And so it was really around the 2006, 2007 timeframe that as a country, the United States, public health officials in the United States started diligently and actively working on developing plans for how we would respond to a large scale pandemic. What I tell my students when I teach is that we knew this was coming. We knew that we'd see a pandemic. We knew our healthcare system would be overwhelmed. We knew that shortages in critical medical supplies, such as PPE and ventilators and other types of medical equipment would be in short supply. And so while we had done tons of planning, I think that because public health is a field where you don't see bombs blowing up buildings, you don't see um, people becoming afflicted, you know, as they walk down the street, the public health interventions that we would need in situations like this almost become a second thought or an afterthought. And so when I look at trends in federal government funding, when our federal government is experiencing budget challenges, what I have seen in my career is that oftentimes a lot of these programs and initiatives that public health utilizes where we depend on funding from the federal government, those are oftentimes the first programs to go away hmm. when we are having budgetary issues at the federal level. And so I think when COVID-19 happened, it was almost like this perfect storm of all of those things taking place. You know, some of the planning was being cut back. Um, the federal government's budget was being cut. And so a lot of the training programs and other programs that would have enabled us to be better prepared for COVID simply just weren't there. And so we were caught off guard, for lack of a better word. So, um, again, as someone who has worked in the field my entire career, I definitely see areas where our response was not only deficient, but really could have been so much better if we had just 
um, maintained funding to help us sustain the level of preparedness that we had achieved since we started working on this problem back in 2006. Mm. That's interesting. It's gotta be frustrating. I mean, it sounds frustrating. You've, you yourself and so many others in the field have done so much good work to plan, but it's like not even, it's not, it's out of your control almost at the end of the day, if you don't have the money to implement the things that you've, that's right. That you research them, and so what? So how do you how do you like negotiate this this issue? Like, um, there has to be some sort of like uh, like communication between public health and um, I guess like federal authorities. Um, do you think now after this pandemic has happened, there's going to be like more? Um, I guess more uh, trust placed in public health officials. I certainly hope so. I, I hope that there is not only more trust placed in public health officials, but I also hope that now that we have experienced COVID, you know, it's been over a year at this point. And quite frankly, from my perspective, COVID is nowhere near being over. Yes, we have vaccine available, but we still have significant subsets of the population that are resistant to getting the vaccine. We've seen um, jurisdictions experience great difficulty in distributing the vaccine. We've even seen um, shortages in the amount of vaccine that's being sent to different states and cities to provide to their residents. So not only do I hope that there is greater faith in public health coming out of COVID, but I also hope that now there will be a recognition at the federal level, um, both federal government officials as well as, you know, our um, congressional um, elected members and our senators that public health is important and that funding is not only needed to support public health programs and public health prevention initiatives, but that that funding must be sustained from year to year, because we never know when a new pandemic or some other emerging or re-emerging infectious disease is going to come about. I mean, if you just look at, um, you know, roughly the past 10 to 11 years, in 2009, we experienced H1N1. That was a pandemic. It didn't reach the magnitude that COVID-19 did, but it was a pandemic and it lasted 2009 into the middle of 2010. And then in 2014, I believe it was, we experienced Ebola. And that lasted a year and a half into 2015. And as soon as Ebola ended, maybe a couple of months later, we experienced the Zika virus. A lot of people have forgotten about Zika. So, um, so that was roughly, you know, 2016 that we experienced Zika. And then three years, almost four years later, COVID. You know, so now that we've begun to experience these things, we can't expect that they're going to go away. So funding not only needs to be allocated, it needs to be appropriated, it needs to be allocated, and then it needs to be sustained moving forward. So I'm hopeful that our federal government and our federally elected officials will come out of this COVID-19 situation with that understanding and will do everything that they can to ensure 
that funding is maintained year over year. So thank you. You're clearly surrounded by a lot of negative discussion, right? Like mortality rates, pandemics, disasters. So out of what you've encountered in your career, can you isolate a single meaningful experience you had in your position as someone who's trying to battle these issues? Like, what would you consider your like win? You know, you know, um, I had something happen in 2010 that quite honestly just blew my mind, but it helped me know for sure that I was doing the right thing, that I was doing the right kind of work. So when H1N1 hit in 2009, I was actually in charge of the city of Chicago's response to H1N1, our operational response. And so in the beginning of that pandemic, the only medication that was available was an oral antiviral medication, a pill essentially, that people could take that would minimize the duration of their symptoms. It did not cure H1N1. It just minimized the duration of symptoms and helped people recover a little bit faster than what they would have had they not had the medication available to them. Similar to what we're seeing with the vaccine right now, there wasn't enough of it to go around. And we had pregnant women, very young children, and then very old adults who were more susceptible to that disease. Um, And quite a bit of, you know, seemingly otherwise healthy, relatively young individuals. Um, But also with H1N1, we needed a vaccine. One had to be developed very quickly, same as with COVID, and a vaccine was developed. And once the vaccine was developed and distributed, you know, we saw long lines of people at most of our vaccination sites who were coming to get their vaccine. And I remember a situation where, um, so we would open our vaccination sites. They were located all around the city of Chicago, but they were located within community colleges because community colleges tended to have very large gymnasiums. We could fit a lot of people in at once to to get their vaccine. And we could, you know, flow people through the facility pretty efficiently. But there was one facility where we had a family show up for their vaccine at, I don't know, nine or 10 in the morning. And as I said, we were not opening for vaccination until three in the afternoon. And that was because we didn't want to disrupt the the courses, the classes that were taking place at this community college. And so my team was there just getting prepared and they gave the family a card with a time written on the card. And it just said 5.30. Handed the card to the family and said, here's a card, come back at the time that's written on the card. And they did, they got their vaccination, no problems, no incidents, no nothing. They got their vaccination and they went on their way. And maybe about a month or two later, I was in my office. Vaccination effort is over at this point. I was in my office and I got a phone call. And the phone call was from a person in Washington, D.C. who worked for the National Association of County and City Health Officials. 
And he said, Dr. McKinney, I'm calling from NACHO, National Association of County and City Health Officials. And he said, I'm calling you today because I have a message for you from the medical director of the National Security Council in the White House. And instantly, like, my stomach just dropped because all I could think was, why is the National Security Council sending me a message? Well, as it turned out, that family that we gave the card to with 530 written on the card was his family. He said, I'm from Chicago. All of my family still lives there. They told me that they showed up at your vaccination site. They were early. Your team gave them a card, asked them to come back at 530, which they did. And they were able to get their vaccination, no problem. And I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking care of my family when I couldn't do it myself. And I was just like, I'm doing the right thing. So that was really a bright spot in my career because it was completely unexpected. I was just doing my job. But to know that I not only impacted a family, but to get this phone call from the White House saying that you took care of my family when I couldn't even do it myself, it was, you know, it was just so heartwarming. And again, it helped me know that I was doing the right thing. Yeah, that gave me like such a heartwarming feeling when you said that story. And I think that's the reason why we do a lot of the things we do is it's these small moments that keep you motivated. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and I carry that motivation with me today and it continues to be the foundation of everything I do. And I always say, as long as my work can impact just one person, that's enough. Wow. I love that advice. So did you have any mentors whose work has impacted yours? Or maybe is there any advice you were once given that you could share with us today? Sure. You know, um, I remember when I was in undergrad, um, I was a student in a program called the Biomedical Sciences Careers Project. And it It was a program that was based at Harvard University, um, but it was designed to uh, get minority students involved in careers in medicine and the biomedical sciences. And so when the program would be held, each of the students who registered to attend the conference would be assigned a mentor who was working either in healthcare or some other aspect of biomedical sciences. And so the very first time that I attended the conference as a student, I was paired with a mentor. Her name was Dr. Lenny Golightly, and she was a physician and professor at Harvard Medical School. And what I remember the most about her was that she had an amazing career in medicine but she was also a wife, she was also a mother, she had activities where she volunteered her time. So she gave of her time and her talents, not only professionally, but civically as well. And she was really the first example that I had of a minority woman who was working in her chosen 
career field, but did not have to make a choice between having a career or having a family and a life that was fulfilling outside of her career. And I knew that that was what I wanted for myself. And so she was really the person who impacted me the most and gave me the motivation to pursue my professional interests, but also to not sacrifice um, having a family, you know, being a wife and being a mother as well. Um, One of the pieces of advice that I've been given across my career and that I also provide to students that I talk to today and that I mentor is, you know, when opportunity comes your way, even if the opportunity at the time does not appear to be in line with your career goals and what you want to do, spend a little bit of time further investigating and examining that opportunity just to see if it could provide you some additional perspective, some additional insight, or perhaps some experience that not only might uh, augment your career interest, but perhaps could, you know, make you stand out from the crowd. Um, You know, I was interested in going to medical school. How many students apply to medical school every single year? You know, so for me, a part of pursuing my master's degree in public health, part of that strategy was also to differentiate myself from all of my peers who would be applying to medical school at the same time as me. Um, And, you know, pursuing that master's degree and then taking the opportunity to uh, spend some time working in that job at the Chicago Department of Public Health, even though it wasn't in my, you know, career plan, really opened me up to an entire career that I never even knew existed, that I never anticipated. And I think that while I strayed away from my original goal, I have had such an amazing and accomplished career and I'm nowhere near being done yet. And so that's my piece of advice to always explore any opportunities that come your way just to see where they might take you. Yeah, I think you mentioned, uh, sorry, go ahead. I think as students, that's something that we fear a lot because we feel as though like, you know, you have to have this exact plan set out. And if you don't get it completed in a certain amount of time, then you're just falling behind or is ahead and you're, you got set back. But um, people like you serve as a prime example that it's not really a setback. It actually be a new avenue. That's right. That's absolutely right. It could be a new avenue. It could be something that gives you um, greater insight or understanding or even experience that might make you a better professional in the career that you've chosen. But just taking the time to explore that opportunity and gain that additional experience or insight, you know, can really be enriching um, and could also give you something to share with others along your way. You mentioned that. Um... I think you said that it was a, it was very important to you that you found a mentor who is uh, a minority and also a woman. Um, and one of the themes of uh, the undergraduate research journal that we've been exploring this whole year is uh, diversity in STEM. And I, I'd be interested to hear your story a little bit if you, you ever encountered um, 
you know, you know, bias plays against you for being a minority woman in science and how you overcame these challenges. And sure. um, if you had advice to, to other minorities and other women out there who are aspiring scientists or public health officials even. Yeah, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, I think that women experience bias much more than men. And I also think that minorities experience bias much more than our non-minority counterparts. And my life, my career has certainly been no exception to that. You know, I have had professors say, oh, well, you know, are you sure you want to go to medical school or are you sure you want to apply to this program? You know, almost sort of indicating that I didn't have what it took to be able to succeed in a specific type of program. I will tell you that I've actually had, I had one professor tell me that my thesis topic was, let's see, what was the word she used? Um, a fad, you know, like, oh, that that's not going to be an established industry. You know, you might want to reconsider another aspect of public health. And this is when I was pursuing my doctorate degree. So it's not even like I was, you know, a high school student or even an undergraduate student um, at that point. And um, I've also had professors that and, and counselors in school that prescripted or prescribed the order in which I took my courses, especially my science courses. And, you know, what I learned is that a lot of times that's a strategy that is used to weed students out of a specific course of study. In my case, it was the pre-med track. You know, so they would require or prescribe that, you know, you take the most difficult science course first or that you take multiple science courses in the same semester. So anyone who's ever studied science knows it is incredibly difficult to take more than one science course per semester, as well as a full course load of, you know, your humanities courses and your core requirements. But um, I will tell you, I've always been very strong-willed. My mother would tell you that I'm very stubborn. Um, what I would tell you is that the worst thing that you can do is tell me that I can't do something because then I'm just going to do it to prove you wrong. So when I had the order of my science courses prescribed for me, I didn't complain. I did it and, you know, came through just fine. Um, that's not to say it was easy. It certainly was not. Um, and even in my professional career, you know, I've had, um, people in leadership that didn't believe in my skill and my ability. And, you know, I just had to, as best as I could demonstrate what my true skills were and what my true abilities were. And, you know, I will tell you, it always pays to not only work as hard as you can at the job that you have at the time or the role that you're serving in, but it also pays to, you know, continue to learn, um, do additional enrichment activities on your own outside of a coursework setting or a professional setting, because there's always more that you can learn and opportunities will present themselves where you can display 
the additional knowledge and education that you've achieved even on your own. And that has certainly proved beneficial for me. Um, but, you know, being a professional now and being someone who is in a position to mentor students or talk to students, I am constantly um, working and searching to identify ways to encourage more women and more um, students of color to get involved in the STEM fields. Um, and I, I tell students all the time, we need diversity of thought. We need diversity of opinion. We need different perspectives applied to healthcare and technology and medicine and other STEM fields. That's how we grow as a society. That's how we, that's how discovery happens, you know, and at this point, in my opinion, it's critical that minorities and women be involved in the STEM fields because, um, you know, our world is at such a place of instability in so many respects. And so it is all of those differing opinions and thoughts and ideas, I believe, that will really breed um, the newest and greatest advances in healthcare and technology and medicine and the life sciences. So that's, that, you know, that's where I stand on that issue. Thank you. Thank you so much. Could you, um, so I guess the last question we have is um, maybe you could offer some advice to any of the people listening on how to, um, as undergraduates, how to get involved in research. Um, and maybe if there's opportunities for undergraduates at Sterling Bay, you could talk about that as well. Yeah. So I think one of the first ways to get, for undergraduate students to get involved in research is, you know, look up the professors that are doing research at the institution where you are currently enrolled. And anywhere that you find a professor doing research in an area that matches an interest that you have, schedule an appointment, you know, even if it's just a few moments during the office hours for that professor, but go in and talk with them, ask them questions about their research and ask them if they have opportunities for you to get involved in that research as an undergraduate student, whether it's through a work study program or if the professor has funding available to bring you on as a research assistant, or if you know the professor is willing to bring you on just as a volunteer in the laboratory to help you gain that experience. So that's one way that undergraduates can get involved in research. I will tell you, when I was an undergrad, the way that I got involved in research, I actually found a summer internship program that was dedicated to getting undergraduate students involved in research. Of course, it was a competitive program, so I had to apply for it. But once I was accepted into the program, it placed me at a university, not the one I was attending at the time. It placed me at a university. It placed me in a laboratory that matched my scientific interests. And the lab director gave me a project to work on for the summer. And the program paid me a stipend for the summer and put me up in student housing. So that's another thing that undergraduate students can do. Look up summer internship programs or fellowship programs. The, the program that I got into was through the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. 
Um, so I think that those two are probably the most reliable ways that undergraduate students can get involved in scientific research. Um, but I also think, you know, just researching the life sciences, internet research, I mean, on the life sciences, identifying startup companies that are doing work in the life sciences space, and then sending a message, whether that message is through email or LinkedIn or another social media platform, and ask for opportunities. You never know what's available if you don't ask. And oftentimes, nothing will be available if you don't ask. You know, this is, you know, an area where undergraduate students will have to be proactive. It's, you know, it's easy for companies and researchers, laboratories to take on graduate students and even postdocs, but um, it's much more difficult for undergraduate students. So I know the undergraduate course load is heavier than um, other levels of course load, but you know, add this to your list of things to do because it really is just that important. And then finally, I would mention the program that a different program that I went through that I also mentioned, the Biomedical Sciences Careers Project. Um, their website is um, bscp.org. Go on the website. Uh, they have a conference coming up this April. It is open to um, minority students across the country. I believe it's virtual this year, but um, you'll get paired with a mentor. That mentor is either going to be a researcher or a physician or some other professional working in the biomedical um, fields. And uh, that's a possible entree. But also the BSCP posts opportunities for um, students who have attended their conferences. Anytime research assistantship positions become available, when fellowships become available, when programs become available for undergrad students. So lots of opportunities are out there. You just have to be proactive about looking for them and finding them. Um, started this interview by saying this is my city, right? Or in your yes. Um, so how do you see like the scene of Chicago changing in terms of research or becoming this um, very concentrated research hub? Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about Chicago becoming a research hub. To be quite honest, that is why I left my role at the Illinois Medical District to come here to Sterling Bay, because Sterling Bay is while it is a commercial real estate development firm, the company is making great strides into the life sciences. And my responsibility here, my role here, is to help develop the life sciences community here in Chicago. And research and development are very important aspects of the life sciences community. You know, we've seen um, areas on both of the coasts um, on the East Coast, really Boston is the one that's really taken off for life sciences. And then on the West Coast, San Diego, San Francisco, you know, have also taken off. But I believe that Chicago has the best opportunity to become that third coast, if you will. Um, we have so many world-class universities and healthcare institutions here in Chicago. 
And all of those institutions are turning out great talent, undergraduate talent, but also graduate and postdoctoral talent. But the other thing that I believe in is that in all of the 77 community areas across Chicago, there's a lot of really great talent that exists in those neighborhoods, people who are not accessing some of the world-class universities and academic institutions that we have here in Chicago. And so my goal is to not only attract some of that talent from the universities, but also to find and harness talent that is coming out of our neighborhoods and our communities here as well. And so um, that's one of the things that I'm going to be working diligently on. And, you know, who says that the cure for cancer can't come out of Chicago? I believe that it can. And so I'm going to be doing everything that I can to, you know, find that startup or that entrepreneur who is going to take up residence in a Sterling Bay built laboratory and find that cure for cancer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Could you, um, so I guess the last question we have is um, maybe you could offer some advice to any of the people listening on how to, um, as undergraduates, how to get involved in research. and maybe if there's opportunities for undergraduates at Sterling Bay, you could talk about that as well. Yep. So I think one of the first ways to get for undergraduate students to get involved in research is, you know, look up the professors that are doing research at the institution where you are currently enrolled. And anywhere that you find a professor doing research in an area that matches an interest that you have, schedule an appointment, you know. Even if it's just a few moments during the office hours for that professor, but go in and talk with them, ask them questions about their research and ask them if they have opportunities for you to get involved in that research as an undergraduate student, whether it's through a work study program or if the professor has funding available to bring you on as a research assistant or if you know, the professor is willing to bring you on just as a volunteer in the laboratory to help you gain that experience. So that's one way that undergraduates can get involved in research. I will tell you, when I was an undergrad, the way that I got involved in research, I actually found a summer internship program that was dedicated to getting undergraduate students involved in research. Of course, it was a competitive program, so I had to apply for it. But once I was accepted into the program, it placed me at a university, not the one I was attending at the time. It placed me at a university. It placed me in a laboratory that matched my scientific interests. And the lab director gave me a project to work on for the summer. And the program paid me a stipend for the summer and put me up in student housing. So that's another thing that undergraduate students can do. Look up summer internship programs or fellowship programs. The the program that I got into was through the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Um, So I think that those two are probably the most reliable ways that undergraduate students can get involved in scientific research. But I also think, you know, just researching the life sciences, internet research, I mean, on the life sciences, identifying 
startup companies that are doing work in the life sciences space, and then sending a message, whether that message is through email or LinkedIn or another social media platform, and ask for opportunities. You never know what's available if you don't ask. And oftentimes, nothing will be available if you don't ask. You know, this is, you know, an area where undergraduate students will have to be proactive. It's, you know, it's easy for companies and researchers, laboratories to take on graduate students and even postdocs. But um, it's much more difficult for undergraduate students. So I know the undergraduate course load is heavier than um, other levels of course load, but you know, add this to your list of things to do because it really is just that important. And then finally, I would mention the program that a different program that I went through that I also mentioned, the Biomedical Sciences Careers Project. Um, their website is um, bscp.org. Go on the website. Uh, they have a conference coming up this April. It is open to um, minority students across the country. I believe it's virtual this year, but um, you'll get paired with a mentor. That mentor is either going to be a researcher or a physician or some other professional working in the biomedical um, fields. And uh, that's a possible entree, but also the BSCP posts opportunities for um, students who have attended their conferences. Anytime research assistantship positions become available, when fellowships become available, when programs become available for undergrad students. So lots of opportunities are out there. You just have to be proactive about looking for them and finding them. We were honored to have Dr. McKinney on the show and hearing her story on how she was breathing life into the life sciences research industry here in Chicago. Thanks for coming aboard the Green Line. You can connect with us on our Instagram at Urgent, that's U-R-J-I-I-T, and look out for what IIT undergraduate researchers are up to in our publication coming soon. Doors closing.